Did you have to, uh, did you have to devise the swashbuckling style of punch fighting that you did because of the short reach? Yes, that was the big reason. I had to uh, sort of get low and try to come up, as we say, from underneath to get in close on an opponent because the closer I could get to an opponent, uh, the more damage I could do with the short arms. At, uh, at long range, I just couldn't jab with the, the great jabbers. Uh, such as Joe Lewis when I fought him in 51 uh, he had 11 inches reach on me and was able to just pop that left in my in my face and keep me at a distance I had to sort of crowd and um, move in on him and that is why uh, the style was really developed Rocky um... heavyweight champion of the world Rocky Marciano and the new heavyweight champion of the world, Rocky Marciano. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Rocky Marciano. Rocky Marciano, the new heavyweight champion of the world. Rocky, Rocky, Rocky. Did you think you were winning? Well, no, I thought I was just maybe a hair behind. I knew I had to do something. Uh, I knew I had to do something. And you did do something. Did you think you were going to catch up with well, him? Well, I, I was wishing I'd hit him with that left hook or right hand. Yeah. He certainly takes a good punch there, Bill. Yeah. And you did hit him with the right hand, of course. Yes, I hit him with right hands and left hooks. Did, did you think he was gone? Did you think he was gone when you nailed him? Well, I knew it hurt him. You could feel the push. You knew yeah. it hurt him. I knew it hurt him. Well, congratulations, Rocky. You're a great fighter, game boy, and a, a great credit. This is your boy, Regis Rougarou Progray, and you're listening to Zoot's Boxing Talk. All right, everybody, welcome to Zoot's Boxing Talk, the boxing show where we bring you a sweet science straight up with no twists. How's everybody doing out there this evening, Wednesday, November 2nd, 2022? A little bit later on, boxer Steve Claggett is going to join us. But to start the show, we have a special treat. Uh, this evening, our guest analyst, former fighter, boxing trainer of Lucky Punch Promotions, Mr. Marcus Luck, is going to join us to talk about some of the fights. How are you doing tonight, and welcome back. Hey, how are you doing today, Anthony? Very good, very good. Thank you for coming on. And well, we have a lot to discuss. It was a big boxing weekend, and at the very top of the bill, we had Vasily Lomachenko, against Jermaine Ortiz on ESPN+. Plus. It was a very good fight, a surprising fight for a lot of people. I, I thought it would be a close fight. I thought Ortiz was a good fighter going in, a good matchup going in. Uh, Lomachenko trying to get back to the mountaintop, a good test for him. What did you think of the fight overall? Unanimous decision win for Lomachenko. Well... Going into the fight, I was, I was kind of took by surprise by how many people who didn't know about Jermaine Ortiz or underestimated Jermaine Ortiz with his skill set. Um, I've been knowing Jermaine Ortiz from the amateurs. He's competed with actually one of the guys I have signed, and he um, 
performed. He signed with um, Jimmy Birchfield up in um, the uh, New England area up in um, Rhode Island. Uh, CES Boston. Jimmy's a good friend of mine. He, uh, I got a heavyweight sign with Jimmy. So um, I knew of Jermaine, and I knew with his size, his speed, his combination punches that he would give uh, uh, Lomachenko some issues. My main concern was the duration of the fight. Could he keep it up? You know what I'm saying? Lomachenko has went rounds, and uh, he has a lot of championship, more championship rounds than uh, Jermaine had fights. So, but um, I think he showed a good accountability for himself. Um, it was a few swing rounds here and there. I'm a little biased. I had Jermaine winning by points. You know, um, I'm looking for the swing of rounds. I'm kind of like leaning towards Jermaine. But uh, he put on a great performance. Lomachenko, um, a lot of people said he looked slow or he getting older. No, he's fighting better competition. Um, he's fought a more athletic young guy. He didn't, they didn't put him in there with a slow-footed, one-punch puncher. Like as, as, as uh, Richard Comier and them guys who are, who are measuring you up, looking for the one shot, one kill. Um, the kid put combinations in very good. He kept Lomachik on his back foot. He's not a good fighter going backwards, though. I mean, I think it was a great fight. But, you know what I mean, Lomachik got the nod. But I'm just looking forward to see what he do in the future with the Devin Haney's, with the uh, Shakur Stevenson's, with the Javante Davis, who has way more boxing skills than people give him. And he has the punching power to make Lomo Chico respect him. All righty. Thank you for that. Yeah. And one of the things going in, if you watched Ortiz fight, you knew he was very good uh, on both sides, a good switch hitter. Uh, when he did turn southpaw, it looked like uh, it was working for him. I didn't think he was southpaw enough in that fight. I don't know why he didn't stick in the southpaw stance more maybe you could speak more on that yes um well he turned soft part in the what was the ninth or tenth round when he first did it it was late in the fight when he switched soft part. um i don't remember which round it was but it was kind of late into the fight um but yeah he went soft part, he landed some good shots and uh and he was doing very well but he came back with the very next round and went back conventional Yes, uh, it, it sounds like you found that odd, too. I thought it might have been a little earlier, like around six or seven, but you might be right. But definitely had results, definitely looked like it was confusing his opponent, and it was odd that he didn't uh, really stick with it at all in that fight because it seemed like it was working. Yeah, especially in the later rounds when uh, Lomo really came on really strong uh, in the championship rounds, I, like, I think – Momo came on strong those rounds. I think that's something he could have went back to, reverted to, to you know, just to give a different look. Cause he did look good when he went soft off, and that's something I was like, you know, maybe he'll come back to it later on. But cause he finished that round, he did switch soft off very strong, catching him with shots and throwing him off. But like I said, he came back the very next round, went back conventional, and didn't go back to it at all. Um, but I mean, that's something he can look at, and his team's going to look at and review the fight and. I mean, there's things they're going to pick up on. And, but I, one thing I can say is he displays skill, heart, and he shows he can compete on that top level. Yeah, without a doubt, big fights are going to await him. No question about it. The big fights will be coming. But the big fight that everybody was talking about after Lomachico did prevail uh, via decision was the big unification showdown with Devin Haney.
Devin Haney was there. He went into the ring afterwards, uh, about how now he's in the driver's seat. He's going to dictate what's what. Lomachenko seems like he's very willing to accept that what's what, and we should get this fight. What are your thoughts on it? First of all, do you think the fight will happen? Because we, we seem to get fooled quite a bit. I did a whole rant last week about that. And if it does happen, how do you see that fight going? Um, um, well, people say a lot of things when the camera and the microphone is stuck in their face and they're on the, uh, on the spot, you know. Um, Lomo Chico said he'll take the fight. But if you really look at his reactions when he got in the ring, He's like, oh, you're a heavyweight. You know, he joked about the weight and stuff like that. I mean, those are little things that I look at, too, that, you know, what are you really thinking about when you look at this guy? You know, um, Devin Haney came back out after the fight, and then he said, if things work out and the terms are worked out. So he left himself room there also because guess what? There might be something in the contract, maybe something that he might not agree with or something he might not like. So you can – I hope the fight happens, but you never know with boxing, you know. Everybody has a little extra something that they want, a little extra something that they want in the contract, you know. So I hope the fight happens. Um, I question a few things on the fight. I don't, I don't, right now, I honestly can't say who I favor because um, if you notice Lomo Chico in this fight here, um, he started a little earlier than he did with the, uh, a female fight. Um, he did. I, I don't know if he got robbed, buzzed, but I think it was a third or fourth. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a good with remembering rounds because I watched so many fights that weekend. He got hit with a shot and he looked like he got buckled a little. I don't know if it's all balance or what. And Jermaine attacked him some. Um, so Jermaine did get his respect early in the fight, but later on in the late rounds, it looked like his uh, power kind of faded out and Lomo Chico did take more chances and throw combinations. Um, Devin has to get some respect early from Lomo Chico. Um, I think Lomo Chico will try to, you know, close the distance because he has to because he's a shorter reach and a shorter man, and he has to put his punches together early, early and catch Devin early, and hopefully he can get in and, you know, hurt Devin or, you know, get some kind of respect because if not, Devin can pop shot him, keep him at distance, control the distance and do enough to win the round by points alone. So, I mean, that's a fight that I truly will say I cannot call right now. But mm-hmm. if I'm looking at a favorite, you know, the way Devin Haney can control distance and his footwork and his movement. Um, but, hey, this is the kind of fight you got to fight, fight a perfect fight. You know, you got to be perfect for 12 rounds. And now the man who's a puncher has to be perfect for five seconds. And right now, you have to say Lomo Cinco may be the puncher in, in this fight right here. And uh, David Haney's a boxer. And um, David Haney's past opponent, like Linares, he caught him with a shot, but his footwork wasn't fast enough to keep up with him to keep that kind of pressure on him and stuff. Now he's fighting someone who has the footwork, the speed, and may have the pop to hurt him. So, you know, th- that's a chess match of boxing styles make fights. Can Lomo Cinco keep up with him? And when he do get there, will he throw enough punch or punching power to hurt him? All righty, yep. All excellent points. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very clear that Haney is going to want to set the table with all of his home cooking. 
I mean, he, he, he said it point blank. I agreed to everything that George, George Cambosis wanted. Now he's going to have to agree to everything I want. So that is always a, a situation where, well, let's see if, if, if what actually happens in these negotiations. And, you know, going back to the heavyweight comment, I mean, Haney looked massive compared to Loma. I mean, Loma's a naturally smaller guy anyway, but I was kind of surprised about how much larger uh, Haney looked. Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen both of these guys fight in person, uh, and I, I, you know, when I was calculating it in my head, I, I didn't think Haney was that much bigger, but he certainly appeared to be that way Saturday night. Exactly. He seemed much bigger. But also, you have to look at the factor in that um, at that moment, Haney um, was out of camp. He was not drained. He, uh, Lomachenko's coming from a camp. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he was actually in a fight, so he's, you know, he's not going to get but so much more bigger. You know what I'm saying? But you still have to wonder when Haney is drained down, how much can he rehydrate to? What's the difference? But the height. He's still going to have the height. He's still going to have the reach. But once they both touch that scale of 35 or 30, whatever they're going to touch it at, what is the hydration that Haney will be able to come up to? You know what I'm saying? So that's one thing to play in factor. And uh, is the WBA got the 10-pound hydration clause? Uh, I believe that's so, yeah. Can, yeah. yeah I, I, that's something they can also – he can try to, you know, use that uh, to his advantage and stuff like that. Well, they're fighting for the unified – and he could push the issue with the WBA to for the uh, to honor the ten pound rehydration clause. You know, so there's there's a lot of things right there that they can use. And like you said, um, as when you're in the driver's seat, how are you going to control that? What are you going to uh, push the issue with? On he has to take advantage of. Yeah, and and I just I just told a lie, Marcus. Uh, I was actually thinking about it. I never saw Lomachenko fight live. I did see Haney fight uh, a couple of times, but uh, never Lomachenko in person. So that that is not true. <laughs> but uh, let's talk a little bit about the undercard. A lot of interesting talent on the undercard. A lot of fights that went the distance. Uh, I, I'm not sure how exciting some of these fights were, but certainly. A lot of talent. I particularly like uh, Troy Isley. I think uh, he's one to look out for. Haven Brady Jr., he's been on this show before. Uh, I, I think he is one to look out for. Uh, then you had uh, the uh, interesting story of Richard Torres and of obvious BC Ramirez. What were your overall thoughts on the undercard and fighters? Uh, you started breaking up a little there. Um, but, yeah, the undercard, I think, does have a lot of interesting fighters. Um, I caught it a little late because, like, you know, it was so much nice of boxing. You're flipping back and forth, and you're trying to catch everything. But um, I think they had a couple of guys on there that would have a great future. Um, I don't get into the uh, hype of fighters yet sometimes because at the end of the day, we know boxing. There's an inside thing with boxing. Like I tell people, boxing is smoking mirrors. Um, early on, you can get matched up to look good. You know, you're going to beat the ones you're supposed to beat. And then, you know, they're going to shop around, find somebody with a good record, a good credible name, and still put you on there with the odds are still in your favor. Um, it's up to you just to do your job. But so some of these guys do look good, and some of them guys I mean, did their job handedly. 
you know, and someone was put to a test. And those are the measurement sticks that I try to use when I'm, like I say, you see epidemic fighters um, put into the test and see which one's exactly going to pass the test and how they pass the test with flying colors, which you know they can level up on. And then you have some to struggle and get by, which they still have to go back to the drawing board and look, look over it again, you know. But, I mean, it was a decent card. You had some good fights on there. And some of the guys I'm very looking forward to see fight again. All righty. Now, uh, it was a big weekend here in the U.S. for the streaming services. That was ESPN+. Plus. Then we had the two the zone cards later in the evening was the, the big Zepeda-Jojo Diaz fight. I, I thought it was a very good main event. Zepeda impressed me with his work rate, with his ability to put punches together. But uh, on the other side, the Neil McCauley side of things, it looked like he got rocked. Uh, as many uh, as many combinations as he put together didn't ever really seem to uh, have uh, Diaz in any kind of real trouble to get him out of there. You wonder about his power in that weight class. And Jojo Diaz, I thought, came on strong at the end. But overall, very impressed with uh, Zepeda. Want to see more of him. Want to see him uh, against the top champions in that division. And as far as Jojo Diaz goes, valiant effort, but uh, uh, he's definitely on the other side of things, I think. What was your impressions of that fight? Yeah, um, like once again, it's one of these things where you got the younger, fresher guy. Uh, the Peter put together great combinations, and like you said, his output was magnificent. I was very impressed with his output and how he can carry the distance. But once again, in question, power. What would he do with the elite guys at that weight, and how could he hurt them? And when you got guys like Jojo Diaz, he's a come forward, I'm coming to get you type fighter. But when you got the guys who can move, who can box, who's going to switch it up on you, give you a different look, when that first two punches don't land, can you set the third or fourth punch up? Can you put the punches together to hold these guys off and outbox these guys? Um, Jojo set valid effort. He came. I mean, I can honestly say I feel Jojo's uh, pretty much at the level he's going to peak at. He's not going to get too much more better. This one on, I see Jojo's like, you know, degressing, going downhill. But I'm trying to say, you know, I, I want to see the paint again with a younger, fresher guy who's going to give him a little more movement, give him a little more challenges on his combination. I think that he's still running them same punches with guys with a, a, a boxing, more boxing ability, you know. Um, um, he did like he get caught with some good shots, um, you know, and he, he did well with them. But I'm still waiting to see him with a level a level up guy, you know, someone who's not going to be that much in front of him, someone who's not going to stand there and take those four or five punch combinations, and and, and see how can he create those punches with another boxer who's moving and avoiding them shots. They're going to slip and give him two or three, you know. That's when it gets exciting to me, you know. That was a perfectly made fight. A guy who's going to throw combinations, give you a little movement, and a guy who's coming forward trying to come get you. I mean, I really enjoyed that fight. It was a great, exciting fight um, because it's, it's always good when you get that guy who's kind of coming to knock you out and the guy who's trying to pretty much trying to avoid being knocked out. But he, he boxed a clean fight, um, worked his jab real good, and threw great combinations. Um, JoJo couldn't close him distance and, 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 and catch up with him later in the fight when, you know, you thought maybe, you know, that's when the things will start changing in mid-rounds to late rounds. 
Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, the telecast was throwing Ryan Garcia out there as a possible uh, next opponent, uh, but uh, a lot of people don't want to hear Ryan Garcia's name mentioned unless it's a Tech Davis fight. If I'm handling Zepeda, I don't go anywhere near Ryan Garcia unless it's for some kind of championship and at lightweight uh, it seems like uh, Devin Haney has all of the belts. Uh, I don't think he's going to get a Devin, Devin Haney fight next. I mean, don't get me wrong, Marcus. If he fights Ryan Garcia next, great for us. I'll be there watching. Uh, but uh, I would advise against that fight. And, you know, why can't we get uh, Garcia and, and Tank Davis while we're on <laughs> while we're on the subject? So, uh, you know, I just threw a lot out there to you, Marcus. Uh, comment any way you see fit. Okay, I'm going to start with Zepeda Garcia. For Zepeda's best interest, that's not a good fight right now. Um, unless you say it, it's for all the marbles. Why take a risk on your career and you're not, the game is not there, you know? Um, would it be an interesting fight? I would love to see it. Because Ryan Garcia is somewhat exactly what I just described when I said the style of opponent that would impress me more was Zepeda, the longer guy who can move a little, who can box a little, who can put you behind his jab, and who can control the distance and then can punch as well. He has the speed and he has the power. So that is the type of fight that I would love to see for for Zepeda. But at the same time, if I was Zepeda's people, is that the kind of fight you want this early without getting a guy who's a second tier behind Ryan with the same attributes to get him prepared for Ryan Garcia. And if it's not for all the marbles, then why take that risk as well? You know? So that's my answer to that part. But the um, Tank Davis, Ryan Garcia, that's a fight I'm very interested in seeing as well. Um, I like to see what he can do, um, what they're going to do. You have to give Ryan Garcia um, credit. He's no slouch in the ring. You know what I'm saying? The kid can't fight. But is he mentally strong enough to take that kind of fight and go the distance? And is he going to try to go toe-to-toe with Javante Davis, which I wouldn't recommend as well, you know? Um, Tank is used to fighting taller people. Tank is used to being a smaller person. Uh, Tank's power carries up in all those weight classes. We've seen him go up to uh, 40. We've seen him hurt people in spawn at 47. So, I mean, uh, that's just a fight I want to see. I, you can't say, oh, I favor Tank. Oh, I favor Ryan. Why do you favor these guys? You know what I'm saying? That's something you got to figure out because both of their best attributes can be the most dangerous things for both of their styles. So it's pretty much who catch who, when they get caught, and who can finish who if they do get hurt. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating because that fight has been thrown around for so long and it doesn't seem to be happening, and it should be an easy fight to make. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you gave praise to Ryan Garcia. He's a guy that gets a lot of heat. And I think he's one, he's a guy that's extremely good for the sport. And he gets hammered on, on social media. And by guys, you know, knowledgeable boxing people, not just what you would call, you know, casual fans. I mean, uh, he's a guy who could obviously fight. He has a big fan base. He's a big draw. He gets attention, right? Uh, the only problem is we want to see him in there against better competition. I get all of that. Uh, but right now, I think Ryan Garcia is, is has star-making capability and could obviously fight. And I'm hearing just the opposite from a lot of people on these uh, 
Facebook group and, and boxing chats. Uh, what do you think about that, Marcus? Yeah, I mean, a lot of I don't I, I don't want to say casual fans or um, people tend to. Okay, let me have say. There's a lot of people who have gave Ryan that name, and then you have the casual boxing fans who really haven't did their homework and research. You know what I'm saying? This kid has been fighting his whole life. This kid has fought internationally. He's had, like, great amateur experience. It's not like he's just an old guy who just – he's a guy, he's cute, he looked good. You know what I'm saying? Like De La Hoya. De La Hoya looked good, and they marketed him as a pretty boy, but De La Hoya was mean. Ryan Garcia had the same chip on his shoulder. But once people start saying things, you have to casual fans who want to run with that same output and that same stand, which they don't know the true uh, meaning behind uh, Ryan Garcia or what he's been through or his career. They don't know that, and they haven't did the research. The kid can fight. No questions about it. The kid can fight. You know what I'm saying? So Tank ain't got no easy walk there. <laughs> and with the height and the reach advantage, right, right. the only thing that I worry me about uh, um Ryan, is his footwork is not that good. He don't fight well going backwards, and his chin is straight up in the air. He still have a lot of defensive flaws. And Tank don't have a high output. So that's one thing you got to worry about as well. Tank don't have a high output. Right, right. punches. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. He's not going to go fine, 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 and hope something catches. You know what I'm saying? He's going to walk through some stuff. He's going to start seeing your punches. And Tank, he, he takes time to dissect his opponent. And that's one thing I do worry about him as well. Because in the middle of that, can he get clipped? You know what I'm saying? Is he going, you know, his defense got to be tight early on. Because, you know, he rolls shots. He catch shots with his hands and stuff like that. But what if he missed time when a Ryan punches and something glazed him or something like that? So there's a lot of things you look at in this boxing world that some of these novice people don't understand, don't see. The kid can fight. He has blazing speed. And guess what? He's long. So Tank got to walk through that. Like um, his fight against, um, oh, Lord, what's the Mexican kid's name? He caught him with the uppercut and knocked him out. Um, Santa Cruz? Yes, Leo Santa Cruz. Leo Santa mm-hmm. Cruz just stayed busy. He stayed busy and had enough arsenal to keep Tank at bay for a while. But once Tank started getting calculated, seeing what punches he was throwing, he just timed him, walked, he slipped, dropped up a cup, and he knocked him out. But Leo Santa Cruz did very well with Tank, just with being busy, letting his hands go. And if Ryan can do that kind of same similar thing, I would take some of the power off of my shots. You know what I'm saying? Just stay away from him, throw my combinations, move, throw my combinations, move, and just keep turning him with that same game plan with score points and not sit there and bang and try to knock him out. He can pull it up there. Glad that you mentioned De La Hoya because that's one of my theories, uh, Marcus. Just like De La Hoya, a lot of people want to talk down on Ryan Garcia because he's a good-looking guy. I mean, what, what is it with, with men and bo- boxing in particular that they they feel that these guys who are better looking than them are, are a threat, right? If I was to go down that route and uh, felt that every guy I felt was better looking than me was, was a threat, 
Thanos would have nothing on me if you know if you're a fan, a fan of the Marvel stuff. I mean, uh, you know, have more than half the population would would be wiped out. I mean, who cares that he's good looking? Why is that such a a factor? I think both with him and Delahoya, that was a big factor. It sounds silly, but I think it's a real thing. It, it, it really is. You know what I'm saying? Because it's, it's two factors in it. You got that poster boy factor with sales, that good look factor with sales. But the negative side of it is, it don't look like you've been through anything. You ain't had a rough life. You don't, you're not tough. You don't have any battle scars. You don't look dangerous. Right. So you're that pretty boy, and nobody wants to get right. beat up by the pretty boy. Good point. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Look yeah, at so, Ali. What do you say? I'm pretty. Right. And look, I just yeah, yeah, all yeah. these fights, and I still look good. You know, so it's a selling point to the point of I'm going to bring girls to the sport who don't think about boxing because guess what? I'm eye candy. I can fight my ass off, and I'm mean. Well, I, I hope we get to see that fight because you're talking about two of the real potential monumental stars in boxing, Garcia, for all the reasons that we already said. And, and, and Tank, I think, is one of the best uh, one-punch knockout artist guys in the sport today, which would make for a great fight. But again, all we do is keep talking about it. When are we going to see it? Well, we'll have to find out. But the other big fight at the top of the bill on another Dazone card featured uh, one of the biggest female fighters in, in boxing, Katie Taylor against uh, Carbajal. I mean, I, I thought the big story of this fight was Katie Taylor was just a, a little bit uh, better in, in every aspect of, of the, you know, the, the sport. I mean, she was more accurate. Uh, the one thing that Carbajal had going for her early was her work rate was high second half of the fight her work rate was much lower and i and i don't need copy box to tell me that uh you know it, it was clear and uh, taylor got better and more accurate as the fight uh went along uh, but with the females i have a, another question for you about that but first let's let's start with that what was your assessment of the fight well it's the same like you said um she was trying to push the pace earlier with uh, more aggression, more force. Katie stayed behind her jab very well. Her movement was awesome. I think she controlled the fight with her distance, her timing, and she let her hands go just as clean. And the uh, later part of the fight, her punches digressed, and guess what? Katie uh, <laughs> just started shining even more. She separated herself more at the end of the fight with her movement, with her punches, with her uh, reach. She controlled the fight. She kept the distance. And she did very well. And as the fight drew on, you could see it was separation in the conditioning, the stamina. You know, you know how people say, you know, this is a war of nutrition. And that's, that, that seemed like what it was. Earlier, the fight was much closer. The, the fight was very good. But toward the end, guess what? The one who had the best condition, the best stamina, and, and, train, and I can't say train harder because you never know what you, you need to want to train. Maybe the girl exerted herself too much early and didn't have a lot in the back end of the fight, you know. But Katie rose to the occasion because um, that was probably one of the of her last couple of fights that she had a clear nod and a clear win that was clearly that she won that fight. You know, Katie has been getting a couple of, you know, favorable decisions and stuff, but she really won that fight, and she separated herself from that fight. 
Yeah, I mean, a good, good point. I definitely don't think she beat Amanda Serrano. I covered that fight and, and wrote that I thought it was a bad decision. I thought Serrano won, but I uh, can't make that case in this fight. Exactly. You can't You can't make that case. She separated herself, and she pulled away, and she did what she's supposed to do. You know, um, early on, it was a little bit more competitive, but with her movement, her jab, and her positioning, and, I mean, I think she just, you know, she picked her apart later in the fight, and she, I mean, she separated herself. She clearly won the fight. Now, the other thing about the female fights is this, this idea of the two-minute rounds, it, it, it drives me crazy. And when are we going to see females fight three-minute rounds? I know there have been examples of it, but for the most part, they fight only 10 rounds and two-minute rounds. Uh, I mean, can can we stop this nonsense? I mean, uh, you know, in, in MMA, women fight the same five-minute rounds that men do, and I know it's a little bit of a different sport, but it's a combat sport nonetheless. Uh, I mean, maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you think two-minute rounds is, is uh, you know, appropriate for female fighters. Let's start there. Is that What is just on it all together? Honestly, I, I never really thought about it that way, um, and that is weird because and amateurs, women fight the same amount of rounds and stuff, stuff as men, you know. So um, why not? And, but um, I remember when they first started doing women boxing, I ventured shows, and they had a few, had a few fights. Like the, uh, the women did do three-minute rounds, and then it was kind of like, you know, contested and stuff, you know, before. But because I, I, there was a few fights I would do. I don't know if they did it by mistake or what, but – Women had did three minute rounds, but um, me personally, I would like to see three minutes. I don't really, really put too much thought in it. Um, a good woman fight is a good woman fight, and a good trained athlete is a good trained athlete. And if they're going to compete, and you say that you say you don't want any, um, you want equal rights, you want hey, three minute rounds. And then I think you'll see a little bit more women knockouts. Um, you'll see a little bit more um, fights that you know you can you can you can test people a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? You can you can take them to the distance. You know, like two minute rounds is fast. Um, and the difference between the pro and the amateurs is it's shorter rounds, so your output is long faster. You know what I'm saying? If you like, let's use um, Clarissa Shields, her last fight. Look at her output. It was freaking insane. If she'd have hit a three minute round, she'd have threw like 150 right. punches in one round. You know. Right. So when you put that difference in there. Are you going to still make, use those kind of punch combinations and stuff? Are you going to throw as much as you did in three minutes for 10 three-minute rounds? You know, so that changes a lot of the fight game, you know. If you can change somebody to a two-minute round, someone who, put, who throws a high volume of punches, take them to three minutes. It'll change dramatically. You know what I'm saying? So that, that, that do question leaves questions at hand about if, he, if you go to three minutes, would it be different? If you go, you know what I mean, how are you going to wear somebody down or you get somebody hurt right there that – a minute and a half, a two-minute mark, and then the bell's ringing. You know what I'm saying? Will you get a chance to get a better knockout? Will you get a chance to walk them down, to hurt them? You know, that's a lot of stuff that leads the questions of boxing fans. But me personally, I never really thought about it, you know, and, and put questioning what I want to see it or not. But, you know, when you ask that question, that do make it rouse out. You know, it brings up the imagination. What if? You know? But, you know, I've indeed, never really thought indeed. about it, you know. 
See, there you come on the show and I get you thinking. How about that? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but one thing I can't say is my women fighters train three minute rounds. Some far four minute rounds. We do everything right. the guys do. They, we're, we're not going to change the bill for our women. So if you go to the average gym, most coaches have their women on a three minute bail. And some guys even, we go to four, some women stay on a four minute bail for condition, for right. cardio. So most of the time we're training the same. You know, so yeah, it's ridiculous to think they can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, you could, to say they can't is one thing. So I know darn well they can. You know? Um, right. Uh, Britain and Hart, a lot of women uh, spar with like, men anyway, right? A lot of women spar with it, men. It, if they can exactly. spar with men, why can't they fight three-minute rounds? It's ridiculous. And that's exactly what I was ready to say, because uh, Britain Hart, uh, she just won the flyweight championship in Bare Knuckle Boston. She's in my gym. She spars three-minute rounds, four-minute rounds, and she spars with guys most of the time because it's hard to find women work. I mean, she's a killer. She has no question, no, hey, how many rounds is it? <laughs> the bell go off, she's fighting. You know, women do not come to the gym like, well, what's the bell on? We need to be only fighting two minutes. No, they face, they spar three-minute rounds. You know, so why couldn't they fight three-minute rounds? Right, they and I did ask this question. I, yeah, I did ask this question to some female fighters, Heather Hardy, and uh, I remember Alicia uh, Ashley, Smashley Ashley, uh, I think that was her name. I might be getting mixed up with an MMA fighter, but uh, th- they both said the same thing uh, along the lines of, yeah, but that means you have to pay us more. So there might be a little resistance with switching it because then their purses are going to have to go up if they're working three minutes around instead of two. Well, me personally, I think if you're a star, you're a woman, you pay what you weigh. If you're bringing in the same kind of crowd, you get the same kind of money. You know, I mean, like I said, you pay, you want more rounds, you want more money, all that. I believe that. You know what I mean? Why not? They're, they're putting their life on the line just like we are. You know, they're getting in the ring, they're fighting, they're taking punches, they're getting hit. They're doing the exact same thing a man is doing. The only thing different is when it comes to ticket sales. <laughs> I mean, are you put, have you put yourself out there? Have you marketed yourself? Have you developed a team behind you that's going to get people out to come see you? Because what people fail to realize, that's what generates the money. Ticket sales. I mean, I can't tell you what uh, um, Javante Davis is getting because guess what? Javante Davis is selling out. I mean, are you selling out? Good point, yeah. The, I mean, uh, yeah, we, have, we have at well. the top. Right, right. I mean, Katie Taylor certainly is a draw. Clarissa Shields is a draw. I mean, that Taylor Serrano fight, I was there, and it was one of the most electric atmospheres I've ever been at in a sporting event, period. So uh, the names at the top are certainly doing it, but uh, I'm not sure how much it's trickling down. But female fighters are, are, are certainly looked at in much more high regard and certainly have much more interest now than they ever did before. Yeah, and one thing... Believe it or not, I always thought female fighters are more exciting than a lot of the guys. When you get to the top guys, you got real skill. You're going to see the punch. You're going to see the missing. But at the end of the day, these females fight. <laughs> females are mean. They, are, they fight. They fight. They're letting the things go. They're throwing. They're... <laughs> women are meaner than guys in that ring. <laughs> women, like I get women all the time from my gym. I'm like, yeah, why are y'all so mean? Like, like right now. I give them, women come to the gym like, oh, you want to fight? They're like, yeah, who, who am I fighting? You ask the guy, yo, you want to get in the ring? Man, anybody hitting me? Guys look at it, 
getting hit. Women look at it as it, who I get to hit. <laughs> well, there you go. Marcus Luck, thank you for stopping by. We're going to close with you telling us what's going on with yourself. You're always busy. You're always working with fighters. Uh, what do you want the fans to know moving forward? Well, uh, I just did a show October the 8th in Richmond, Virginia, headlined by Jermon Roster. Uh, three-time national amateur champion. I uh, just signed him. We're working with him. Um, I have fights this weekend in West Virginia, next weekend um, Boston, and then I'm following it up. Uh, I suppose they actually come to uh, Vegas for a top rank card. I may not go out there. And then I'm following up on November the 16th with Jermon Roster and D'Angelo Evans fighting in South Carolina. Those are my two upcoming studs that I'm working with, one's 5-0, and one's 3-0, and and I'm back in action in February the 9th in Richmond, Virginia again. And if you want to look me up or see what we're doing, you can go to coach underscore luck underscore M on Instagram, or you can just go to luckypunchpromotions.com. That's my website where you can keep in tune to see when we're fighting, what we're doing, and what guys I have moving along in this boxing world. All righty. Thank you so much for coming on. We'd love to have you on again soon. It's been a pleasure. Always. Nice talking to you, Evan. All right. Take care. All right. So, All right. so, so there you go. Excellent insight, as always, from uh, Mr. Luck. Before we get to Steve Claggart, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the undercard of the, the Katie Taylor uh, card because I thought that was the most interesting under, undercard of the three fights. Uh, that we had on the streaming services. So we had Gary Colley uh, taking on Bellamedi, and that was the first round uh, KO for, for Colley, a nice little short left with his back to the ring post, uh, you know, right on the point of the chin, and he gets uh, his man out of there early. Gary Colley is a guy who's getting uh, attention and should be in some uh, good fights in the future. Uh, then we had a, a female fight, uh, Scottney and Romero, uh, early on, there was a lot of uh, following each other around, a lot of clinching, a lot of punches that were missing the mark, you know, right in front of each other and just missing uh, the right hands and all that kind of stuff. But then around round five, uh, Scottie started cooking with some gas. She landed a very good right hand in the eighth round, landed effective power shots at the start of the ninth round. And uh, Scottney won a comprehensive decision, 97-93, 97-94, 96-94, which was probably a little too close. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Scottney prevailed. Then we had the heavyweight Johnny Fisher versus Musil. Uh, this was another first-round stoppage. And it was a fight that didn't take long, but it also didn't take long to see Fisher's skills still has a lot to work on. He still, still does, he's very telegraphed. He has a lot of work, especially when he had uh, his man hurt along the ropes, wild swings, a little bit more accurate when he got his opponent in the middle of the ring, certainly uh, needs to improve, but you know, look for him again, Johnny Fisher. Then the fight that I was looking most forward to this weekend, uh, my man Jordan Gill against Kiko Martinez and, uh, Gill, he came out to Rick James' give it to me, baby. I was all hyped up, ready to go. Gill had a, a, a good first round, but in the third round, uh, it was a, a punch that got through the earmuffs of Gill. 
uh, and he went down. Uh, Martinez was determined in this fight. When Gil went down initially, he didn't seem to be hurt, but uh, Kiko just went to work uh, behind the jab, and he broke Gil down. He landed a crushing right uppercut that dropped Gil for the second time late in that round. Gil tried to hang on. That's why I love him so much because he's a fighter. It's not an easy out. And he was looking for another miracle. But uh, Martinez was relentless, and he stopped him in the fourth round. And that that was uh, a step up for Jordan Gill. That was a situation where if Jordan Gill prevailed, title shot. But now it's going to be Martinez uh, late in his career, probably getting another title shot. And it just goes to show you how, and Zach and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, how these champions aren't really champions anymore because there's so many belts to go around. And uh, most cases is a lot of nonsense because there's a situation here where in order for Jordan Gill to get a title shot, he got to get through a killer like Kiko Martinez, right? You might not want to look at Kiko Martinez in that way, but he is a tough guy he is a top level guy he had to beat this top level guy to get the title shot and he couldn't do it so now the top level guy once again finds himself in a situation to be on the championship level in a championship fight and it was all well earned and whoever Kiko Martinez might get a title shot against that's going to be one hell of a fight it's going to be a situation where whoever wins is definitely belongs on the championship level. But a lot of people don't look at it that way. So you have that. So that, that was the big uh, stuff of the undercard. Uh, and then obviously we talked about the Katie Taylor stuff already with uh with Marcus, and we, we want to look forward to possibly Amanda Serrano rematch. There seems to be a little bit of disagreements of where the fight should be held. And, you know, after the fight, Eddie, I didn't talk to this with Marcus, I forgot, but after the fight, Eddie Hearn was most interested in Kelly, Katie Taylor's next fight being in Ireland. The opponent didn't matter as much as that has to be the fight. The fans of Ireland need to see Katie Taylor fight in front of them. Amanda Serrano, beautiful, but if it's not, no big deal. The most important thing on Eddie Hearn's agenda is Katie Taylor's next fight is in Ireland. So we'll see. The most important thing on Steve Claggart's agenda is keep on punching, and he'll be on with us right after this.
by Jeff Fenneke, three-time boxing champion of the world. You're listening to Zoot's Boxing Talk. Don't miss this show. It's a great show. All righty. Welcome back to Zoot's Boxing Talk, the boxing show where we bring you sweet science straight up with no twist. And, and, and Mr. Fenneke was a little modest there. He didn't say Hall of Famer, all-time great. That's what he is, right? If every time we mention Bob Arum's name, we have to say Hall of Fame promoter, let's give the Hall of Fame fighters the same due. And there were many more exciting and better than Mr. Jeff Fennick, who actually happened to write the forward uh, to my book, Tough Man, the Greg Hogan Story. Make sure you look for that on Amazon. And if you're a fan of the show, follow me on Twitter at Zoots Boxing Talk. My next guest is a professional fighter. And the super lightweight division, although he's gone up higher than that in his weight, and we're going to talk to him about that as well. He sports a record of 33-7-2 with 23 KOs. He was just in action not that long ago. I think it was October the 27th. Let's make sure I got that right. October the 27th, fourth round stoppage over veteran Jonathan Anise. Welcome to the show for the first time, Mr. Steve Claggart. How are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great over here. Thanks for having me. All the way from Alberta, Canada. So let's start there. Uh, when we hear Canada here in the U.S., we primarily think hockey, not so much boxing, although there's been many very good boxes from Canada. So let's talk about how you got interested in boxing and were you ever interested in pursuing a career in hockey? Well, I started off my young athletic life uh, fully submerged in hockey because I was playing since my dad got me into it when I was about four or five. So up in in Canada, a lot of the times when we're starting playing hockey as little kids, it was just kind of the way that it was for me. And then I played for years. I played for probably 13 years or something like that. And probably around the age of 12 or 13, 13 years old, I um, got into a little scrap playing hockey, turned into, uh, you know, I was getting mad. I was I was upset about it. My mom ends up putting me into boxing class uh, to work with a boxing trainer so I can vent a little bit of the aggression. Turned out to be more than a vent because I, I started to love it and I, I kept going. I had my first fight when I was 13, pretty much a couple months in, and then I grew from there and I'm still going today. All righty, yeah, and uh, hockey is. Uh attached to fights hockey fights is a big thing especially i mean when i was a a kid into hockey in the 80s dropping the gloves and getting into fights was a big deal george mcphee around my area was just as popular as uh, wayne gretzky (laughs) Uh, so you know that that was a big thing but obviously a hockey fight is so much different than a boxing match so what were the big differences you identified right away when you started doing it well, I I was kind of always a fighter. I was fighting at school. I was fighting in the neighborhood. Not necessarily with bad blood. I just kind of was scrappy. I, I liked the the combat. I liked getting into it. And, and I even had times when I 
uh, you know, I'd end up fighting somebody, and after the fact, we end up becoming friends. So it was kind of, it was like, it was just an interest in the combat world, I think. And as far as fighting in hockey as opposed to fighting in boxing, it's a world apart because hockey, you're on skates, you can't get your footing under you. It happens within, you know, a couple seconds and it's over and you get in trouble for it, even though it's not that much trouble. And I mean, it's a different world, but it definitely gave me an idea of combat and getting into it. You're against somebody, so you feel that animosity. It has similarities for sure. But uh, boxing goes in depth, and hockey is just kind of part of it. Yeah, and watching your style, that makes sense. You like to come forward. You like to get inside. You like to mix it up. (laughs) It reminds me of what Jorge Arce said uh, when I was at the Boxing Hall of Fame a few years ago, and he's a borderline Hall of Famer, uh, Mr. Arce, and he said, you know, People, you know, they asked him about his aggressive style. It's like people pay for punches, not for running. And you certainly uh, are one who always brings it and brings the punching. But you have boxing skills as well. So talk a little bit about how you started developing your skills and started thinking about becoming a professional, which is much bit, much different than uh, trying to control your aggression uh, in street fights. Yeah, absolutely. Well. I, I knew I was going to be a fighter. As soon as I started my amateur career, I, I just, I was hooked. I, I you know, it, it was more than um, like a little project that I was working on. I was focused on it every day. And I, I go to the gym and when I was younger, I'd teach the kids. And then afterwards I'd train and then I'd work with the fighters. So I was just a gym guy. And then, you know, the, the difference is it's just, it's a different world, but when I fell in love with boxing was kind of, I think my first fight when I was a young kid, I was 13 years old and I I got a taste of hard work paying off. And and that was definitely one of the pieces that brought me into it, like hooked me into the game. And there's, there's a bit more, you know, there's, there's a connection to fighting deeper than just uh, wanting to hit stuff, you know? Indeed, indeed. And what about as a a fan growing up, getting boxing uh, over in Canada? Was it frequently on television like it was here in the U.S.? If so, what fighters do you remember seeing and uh, who caught your interest? Well, it it was, you know, we got got the sports channels and stuff, so we get it sometimes, but it wasn't on that much. I definitely okay. So here's a here's a good one actually. Arturo Thundergotti was one of the guys that I looked up to and started at, like you know I admired him and his heart in the game and seeing the guy put it all on the line like that it was just something different that I really respect like not respected I just I looked up to that that was it was crazy to me. And then nowadays, my coach, Mike Moffa, <laughs> happens to be somebody who came up around Arturo Gotti. He knew Arturo Gotti and Joe Gotti, and it's just a small world. I mean, the game has uh, has brought me for a crazy ride, I'll, I'll tell you that much. 
Yeah, and uh, watching you fight, uh, you could clearly see the the, 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 the Gotti influences. So uh, your amateur career was came to an end in 2008 when you turned pro September 12th of 2008 four round decision against Brandon Carlick. Talk a little bit about that fight and according to BoxRec you weighed in 148 and a half much higher than what you fought after that. So talk about the fight itself talk about the weight and why you decided to go down a little lower after that. You were more around the 140 pound mark uh after that right. pro debut right well i mean okay so uh, honestly when i was a young younger guy i didn't know how to cut weight i i just figured that i would make what i made when i weighed in and as a kid i even i went to the nationals at 152 and i i honestly i, I would probably weigh about 143 or 144 but the weight class was 141 at that time in the amateurs and I didn't know how to cut weight so instead of cutting weight I just kind of went in at 145 or 6 or whatever and I fought all the guys at 152 and later you know I I started boxing with big guys like that and I found that when I'm in the pocket they can't really you know I can shut down that power and I can really use this aggressive style to nullify a bigger opponent's advantages so I get in close and then later in my life it kind of came back again because I was in Las Vegas for a while boxing with a whole bunch of you know professionals and really highly skilled amateur guys who are looking to turn pro and people with like hundreds of fights and I found that that was that was one way that I could break down even someone who's more athletic than me somebody who's got more fights more experience if I wear them down and I get in close and I start to break them down, that became a good strategy for me. And I worked that style into, you know, it started to become my style. And then I had the other side when I had to, you know, you can't outwork everybody. And that was a kind of a harsh lesson that I got in the game as well. So I started working on adding tools and the game, you're, you're forever working and adding new stuff. And I mean, the day that you stop is the day that you'll stop growing. So you always have to find what works for you in the, in boxing, and you got to keep working on your game, sharpening your craft, and also it's individuals because it depends on who you're against at that moment too. And once you started learning how to cut weight, what was that process like? Uh, what was it? I mean, the nightmare in and of itself, but there are – uh, tougher weight cuts than others. Customarily for you, the, were you cutting weight uh, the, the quote unquote the right way once you started uh, you know doing it? Well, at first I wasn't cutting weight because I was you know I was fighting heavy, and then I started figuring out the you know you can you can cut weight and you're, you're the bigger guy, or you, you can you're supposed to do that so you have something of an advantage or at least even playing field. So I started going down. I had the fight at 140. Uh, I had a fight at 144, and then I had another fight at 141, and then I gradually worked down to 140. I even had one fight at 135 at lightweight. And then as I was getting, you know, more experience, I had a fight one time in the Philippines when I cut weight to make 138, and I just did it terribly because – 
I didn't realize that traveling has such an effect on your weight cut. And I, I learned a harsh lesson and, you know, I had, I had a little bit of a scare with that because my body was pretty in a pretty bad shape, not just from the weight cut, but the fight was, uh, that was my first professional defeat. And so I, I learned the hard way about the, I guess, both ends of the spectrum of cutting weight. Yes, you can be heavy and come in feeling good. Yes, you can cut way too much weight and kind of kill your body. So somewhere in the middle, I trial and error brought me to 140, and that was the weight that now I'm making and seemed to fit my body and my structure the best. So it took a little trial and error, but I found the weight class that works best for me. And that was the your, your first loss was the only time that you were stopped in a fight, correct? Yes, and I and I believe there was not that much time left in the and it was in the last round and I was up on the scorecard, so it's a bittersweet one still to this day. But I had so many injuries. Yeah, eight rounds uh, of an eight round fight. You knocked your opponent out a couple of times in that fight as well early. Yes. Yeah, so I win if it goes to the scorecard, but I got stopped standing on my feet. I was still up. I hadn't gone down, but what happened was with the weight cut and my, my stubbornness, I was just putting up my high guard, taking punches on the guard, and honestly, the stoppage wasn't that bad because I ended up having a concussion after the fight. In the third round, I had missed a punch and herniated the disc in my back, attempting to finish the guy so i was really really in bad shape and i mean they probably could have stopped it earlier and in hindsight it was it might have saved me it might have saved you know me from really bad permanent injury you never know right so it's just kind of the the bumps of the road man like honestly the game of boxing's hard and that was a harsh lesson but i bounced back Uh, yeah, bounce back is kind of an understatement because, uh, you know, that, that fight was in March of 2013. And uh, according to your record, you were right back into it at the end of May in 2013. Considering what you just described, it, it sounded like you, you got back in a little too soon. But you can't really say that because you went on a nice streak of stopping a lot of your opponents. Yeah, well, honestly, I came back. I flew back to Calgary. It took me, it was, it was the worst flights of my life. I came back, I was back in, back at home. I woke up one day, couldn't walk, had to go to the hospital. And then I had to get spinal decompression therapy, which pretty much they pull you apart slowly. And that became something that I had to do weekly, every couple of days. It took about 14 weeks until I could get back to, really light training and it was a process but it also taught me a lot of patience and a lot about the body because the whole time I wasn't allowed to box I was working my mind out and then I still had fire in me I really really wanted to get back to my winning ways and I took the lumps and don't get me wrong there were times when I wanted to quit I didn't want to do anything anything to do with boxing I was I was depressed I was going through it but it's in my blood like I'm a fighter for life and I kind of just started getting back into it in slow motion it pulled me back in I ended up having one fight where just kind of it was against a guy he was a 
something of a journeyman, but, you know, still a winning record. And I, right after that, I ended up fighting for the Canadian title. So I had two fights back-to-back within a month, and that was my comeback from my injury. And I'm happy that I did it that way because it was a good way to get momentum started again. Indeed, indeed. Now, you also had a string, and this has been a, a theme for a while with your, your career, where you had quite a few fights, go to distance, 10-round distance, uh, a lot of close decisions that went your way, uh, a lot of close decisions that did not go your way, but you were very accustomed to going 10 rounds. Uh, yep. So obviously, with everything else, the stamina is there. So what what was the key for you in training to be able to fight 10 rounds so often? Honestly, I've never, I've never really known what the, the secret was, but I, I, I credit it to my efforts in the gym because I've always been a guy who does a little extra in training. I do a couple extra rounds in shadow boxing. I do a couple extra rounds of heavy bag. When I'm running, I push a little bit extra, and I kind of built this extra reservoir over years and years of pushing it just a bit more. And then nowadays, I feel like it's it's adding up, and the stamina exactly. It's one of the things that I'm breaking a lot of opponents down, and I have full belief in my gas tank, I guess you could say. So it's a it's. And it also leads to good fights. So, I mean, it's it's a win-win for me and hopefully for the fans, too. Oh, yes. Anybody who has seen you fight, they know what a treat it is. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about all those uh, decisions that did not go in your favor. Is there one that sticks out where you really, like, man, I won that fight and they took it away from me? Perhaps there's more than one. But if there's one that stands out more than the others, which one would it be? Well, the one that I think that I won for sure was against a guy named Alexander Lapley. And he it was in Edmonton. And that's a fight. I think I won the fight. But now you, can, you can't go backwards. So it was something that I didn't fight to my best. Um, and it was it was too close. And when you leave it up to the judge's decision, it's a perspective that you got no control over it. You should have done more. And then that was, you know, that was probably one that I truly believe that I won. I had the fight with Panamarev early. That was my first um, time on a big, big show. And I fought on the top-ranked card. And I went to Denver, and I took the fight on you know, 21 days notice. So I tried to cram a whole training camp into three weeks. I, I flew to Vegas for a quick sparring trip, went to Denver right after, and I, I was all over the place. So it was it was a, a lesson for sure. But the fight was originally, I believe, supposed to be 10 rounds. And then leading up to the fight, I found out it's eight rounds. And in the fight, he wins on points the whole way through he's kind of controlling the the action but round five i started to get to him round six i'm on him round seven it's close and then round eight i had him hurt and so it was one of those ones where that that fight uh that was a, a big lesson for me one about the you know you can't give rounds away it's a score card game and that was a harsh lesson for me but i also learned 
there's, um, you know, no excuse, but it's a political game and there's favorites. And when you show up in somebody's home turf or you show up against the house, you kind of got to do a little extra if you want to take the win home. So I learned a lot about the professional game through experiences like that. Now, uh, you go into the ring alone. You have to perform alone. But uh, most successful boxers have a good team around them, whether it's their manager or their trainer or a little bit of both. Talk about some of the people that have uh, been with you. Give a little shout-out to uh, who you think has been most responsible uh, for your successful career up till now. Well, I've I've had a lot. I've ran into a lot of great trainers that I worked with, and great people that I had a bond with, and we built with. At different stages in my life, different phases, I had different teams. When I was a young guy, there was a trainer, Eric De Guzman. He's from Calgary. He was the guy who started me in the whole world of boxing. He taught me the first things I know. So I owe credit to him everything because he started me from the ground up and he was my trainer and manager for a while and probably around 22 years old I ended up moving to Vegas I was back and forth quite a bit but I was there um, and I was working with a trainer named Tony Martin and he's from the Mayweather gym he he has been around the game for years and years. He was in the Olympics as an amateur fighter. He worked with a lot of top professionals, and he taught me a lot, and I worked with him for at least five years, and he was my trainer for a while. And then I had a trainer here, back here in Calgary, Vlad Goldenstein, and he's still a trainer. He trains the amateur boxers, and he they have a gym here in Calgary. It's uh, Southpaw Boxing Gym and he was a great trainer too and we worked together we built so much and we went on a run and we beat a bunch of undefeated fighters and we did so- I learned a lot from him and nowadays I have Mike Maffa who is the piece that I needed in my boxing life all the way up this is a this is a trainer who knows through and through he knows boxing and he, he and I are working so well together we're we're like a it's like my fire for the game is renewed because I'm working with a new coach with a totally different perspective and he knows so much so I think it's all about the relationships you build in the game but your willingness to grow and I mean the the path takes us different ways but sometimes you just part ways and you're still all good and it's a it's a great game for that because you get some of the best relationships of your life through this all righty, and we're talking with Steve uh, uh, Claggart. Uh, Steve, you talked a little about doing a little extra in the gym, uh, attributing that to the ability to go 10 rounds on so many occasions, uh, being fresh towards the ends of fights, always having uh, good uh, moments towards the end of uh, fights, still landing big shots, all, all that kind of stuff. What's your approach yeah. uh, to sparring? Uh, do you go hard in sparring? Uh, do, you, do you not really uh, go all out? I, I, I talked to Gary Russell and the brothers, and they don't really go all. They're not really a big believers in going hard in sparring. Many people are. What's your approach, and 
are there any like uh, names that we would know that you have sparred with? Oh, well, okay. So, I mean, there's definitely, as far as I'm concerned, there's some great advantages to both kinds of sparring. The thing with low-intensity sparring is that you can do that all day, every day. If you're taking, you're not taking much impact, you're not taking a lot of damage, you can run touch sparring. You can do that every day. And so you're seeing the intensity in spots because as long as you're working with good guys, you're working on the right stuff, you still progress, but you're greasing the groove, as they say. So you're reviewing again, again, again. And it's a great way to develop skill and technique, and it's really efficient and effective. Now, mind you, when you're getting ready for a fight, I personally believe that you need a little, you need a little impact. You need a little push because you're going to feel it in the fight and you don't want it to be foreign. You want it to be, you're used to that. You're used to the bump. You're used to the hard impact. You're used to taking punches but giving punches. And that intensity, that aggression, you want to be familiar with it before you get in the ring and on fight time. Me personally, that's how I feel about it. And uh, you've had a busy 2022 up until now. Uh, we already mentioned you just fought on October the 27th and were victorious. Let's talk about the big fight you had in August of this year against a guy that I know very well, Tony Lightning Lewis in Cornwall. It was a home fight for him, although it was in Canada. And it was a brutal fight. I mean, the, that first round uh, should be considered a round of the year candidate. Probably it won't because, like you said, politics, a brutal fight all the way until the end. You, you, you stop Tony in the seventh round. You know, he was standing up landing some really hard-thudding shots. You always carry your intensity and your power in the end. Uh, talk about that fight, what it meant. I mean, it was just a dynamic fight. And uh, an easy out is Tony Lewis said no one ever. So talk a little bit about that. Well, that was a, a great fight because Tony and I, we went professional around the same time. So it was always kind of on a path. We were going we to fight at some point and eventually it happened. And this is one of those ones where I got nothing but respect for Tony and I like Tony and we're both two professionals and even the build up to the fight, we didn't have a bad word to say about each other because we're kind of past that in our points of our careers. And we just knew that when you get in there, it's a fight and it's not anything personal. So it was nice to go against somebody so professional and, as far as the fight, I knew that I was in for a battle. Like, I I knew Tony is a warrior. He's shown it. He's been in there with, like, with top guys. And he's one of those guys that you can't take anything away from. He fought hard. It was a back-and-forth fight. It's one of those ones where I wish that everybody saw it, you know. But it's uh, it was a, a war. And we went back and forth. And I ended up getting to him in uh, round six at the end of the round. And then I started round seven strong. And I I caught him with a bunch of punches, stayed on the body. And they ended up um, calling it midway through round seven. 
And that was one of the better victories in my career because, like I said, Tony's a, a great fighter, and we had been on a collision course for a while. So it was a statement performance by myself. And at the same point in time, I wish the best to Tony too because this is the this is the it's all business and it's nothing outside of the ring as far as us two are concerned. All righty, and the fight is on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's nonstop action from start to finish. Uh, it was a home fight for Tony, and throughout the fight, the fans were chanting, Tony, Tony, Tony. I'm, I'm sure you heard that. What, what, does that, that. what does something like that do for you as you are fighting, somebody rooting for the guy that you're trying to beat uh, so passionately? Well, that... I definitely heard it, and that's, like, in my career, I've often been against the house. I didn't realize it when I was going through it, but over so many years, I've developed a pretty tough skin, I guess, because it doesn't bother me when everyone's cheering for the other guy and yelling at me, because I realized early in my professional life, like, they can't fight you, <laughs> so it doesn't matter if the fans are yelling at you. Right. They lose. They're not in the ring, so it's a matter of mental management, and you, you can't expect to sway them in your favor. You can't expect them to stop getting mad at you. Like I root for my guys too, so it's no surprise, and they're gonna call you a bunch of names and yell at you and scream at you. But when I was a young professional, I learned. Actually, my dad told me, you better have thick skin in this game because we're rooting for our guys too. And when I wrap my mind around that, I kind of, I don't care if they boo me, they cheer for him. They're not fighting. The only guys who are fighting are in the ring. And when you look at it that way, it affects you a little bit less. And I think that's a good little mental trick for, for fighters. Just don't, It doesn't matter. They're, they're not in there. So mental management of yourself. But does it give you a little? Does it give you a little extra juice, though, Steve? I mean, not that you need uh, anything to, to, you know, to keep going because you, you're always ready to go. But does it give you a little extra juice to want to shut the crowd up, so to speak? I'm I'm sure that it could. I'm sure that it could. But me, I get the extra juice by just being unaffected by it. So it's like it doesn't even touch me, which in turn makes me feel powerful because then I'm like, it doesn't even touch me. <laughs> that like, It's kind of how you sell it to yourself. It's a, it's a very good skill to have in this sport especially. Psychological management of yourself. Like you, Things go wrong, okay, it's all good. They're yelling at me, I don't care. Uh, I'm nervous, that's part of it. And you know, just how you sell it to yourself it's an important skill to have and just like any other muscle in your body you can work out your mind and the more you prepare for this kind of thing the less it throws you off your game when it happens and the house is booing you that's fine they can't be in the ring and that was how I dealt with that and managed that kind of up and down when you know being against the house again so it's just how you talk how you convince yourself about it I think that's the bottom line now, do you consider that your best performance? If not, what do you think was your best performance up till now? Um, I think that it was a very good performance. Um, the tricky thing for me is that every fight is its own journey, and I, I 
I have spots in certain fights when I was performing my best, but overall, my best performance. I mean, it could. I I think one of my best performances was against Petro Sinanian, and that fight was in Brampton, Ontario, and it was about four years ago, I believe, three or four years ago, and. This was an undefeated guy. He was the biggest puncher I ever faced. And I was just going through so much throughout the training camp. And I, in my personal life, there's a lot of stuff happening. And I dug down in the fight. And I got knocked down in the first round. This guy ended up to be, uh, he was a, a murderous puncher. This guy could punch. And it was one that I had to dig down a lot for. And because of the things that I was going through in my personal life, I brought it with me into the ring put my heart on the line and that that's my most satisfying victory that fight and the notes for that fight say that that fight had a, a same day weigh-in which is very rare nowadays is that accurate yep. was it a same day weigh-in yes it was and in the province of ontario that's what they do so actually when i fought tony lewis recently that was also a same day weigh-in Interesting, and is there much of a difference in preparing as opposed to the day before? Uh, big difference, because it's almost like back to the amateurs, and you you got to cut the weight, but not too much, because you, you'll kind of gas yourself. If you cut too much weight and you're fighting the same day, good luck having energy. So it forced a discipline on my preparation. So when I fought Tony, I made sure that I was I was walking at welterweight. And now, mind you, the fight was a little bit heavy. It was at 146, so it wasn't at 140. And I got myself down to walking at welterweight, 147, and then I just ate real light. And the day before the fight, you cut, you just kind of cut your water and you make it easy on yourself. Um, and I had already sacrificed and I was very disciplined and I, I made the same day weigh in no issue but I'm sure if you, if I left it to the last minute it would have been a major issue because that's a different kind of feel uh, cutting weight the same day it's back to the amateurs really right and in, uh, in that fight with Tony you were 145 and a half in your last fight on October 27th you were 141 uh, moving forward, uh, is there a target weight? Uh, it doesn't seem like it matters. You could do anywhere between 140 and 145. Uh, is there a, a preference moving forward? Uh, like what weight class you want to target? Well, I'm doing 140 because even the last fight, I, I, I we didn't know. I didn't know because I was traveling a little bit and I was moving around. And you can you can have the the give or take a pound in the contract and then I ended up actually drinking a little water and I was having a little a little bit the night before and I made 141 so I had like an eye-opening experience the last fight further confirming I can make 140 so 140 super lightweight that's the weight I'm going to stay at that's the weight I'm going to fight at and that's the one that it, it it almost forces you to be disciplined. So you take on that responsibility and I can like confidently say super lightweight is the weight class for me. And I'll be here until I can't make it anymore. But as far as I'm concerned right now, I I'm making this weight easy. All right. Well, when do you think you'll be in the ring next? 
You just fought not not that uh, long ago. Uh, what, what's the next target day for you? I'm hoping for something as soon as I can. I, I'm I'm in an anxious mind, so I, I want one more before the end of the year. And I'm 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 putting it out there, and I'm asking, and we'll see what happens. You know, it's a political game. So if something can happen, I'm ready to fight. Before the end of the year is what I would love, and I'll be in the gym until I hear the word. You know, so we'll see what happens. And and you know, 140 is a good division. Uh, in your opinion, uh, you might not have an opinion, but in your opinion, who do you think is the best fighter at 140 right now? Um, I mean, it's so it's such a stacked division, especially because all the guys from lightweight are coming up and they have not yet all fought at 140 but uh, all of them are coming up to 140 so i i, I mean i you got to give it to tank i think cuz he's cuz he, he's you know he's proven it and he's winning the fights and he's been in there with the best opposition um, we'll see what Teofimo does when he continues to fight at 140. Um, and same with yeah, it's really it's, it's really a who's who in that division. I mean, it's not yeah, an easy right. pick. So that's what I'm saying. So all those the 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 four guys who are you know really making noise, and even Isak Cruz, and I mean, we'll see who comes out on top, but. I'm I'm looking to fight. I'm ready to fight any of those guys at 140, and I have a lot of experience in this game, and I'm starting to see that from a, a different view now. So hopefully, I can get one of those big fights, and then I can say that I'm the top guy at 140, and I'm looking ready to prove it. So we'll see what happens. If you had your way, who would you want to take on out of those top guys? I want I want Ryan Garcia because um, the noise is all around him. He's a great fighter. He's fast. He's sharp. He's experienced. Like he's he's gaining experience, but he's with an experienced team. So it's a great challenge for me. And I feel that my style would give him terrible problems. So that would be that would be I would like to fight Ryan Garcia for sure. All righty. Thank you, Steve Claggard. It has been a pleasure. Now's the time for closing remarks. Any other shout-outs you want to give? Any social media you want the fans to know about? Now's the time. Thank you for coming on. Hey, well, I, if you want to follow me, I'm Steve Dragon or S Dragon. You, you'll find me. And I just want to give a shout-out to my promoter, I of the Tiger Management. We're We're taking over and we're making big waves up in Canada and we're coming around the world. So, just watch and see, because we'll be making some noise this uh, this year before the end is the end is here. All righty, thank you so much, and it is a pleasure watching you fight. Can't wait to see you again, and love to have you on again anytime soon. Hey, thank you, sir. It was great ch- chatting with you, and love to be back. All righty, thank you. Have a great rest of your evening. All right. So so there you go. Tony uh, Lewis, when he was on, talked about uh, their fight. I finally got to see it. It is on YouTube. Tony Lewis versus Steve Claggart. Check it out on YouTube. It's all action. Brutal, brutal telephone booth type fight. I mean, these guys let it all hang out there. And that's what we want to see, right? 
So let's do a little this date in boxing history. November 2nd, 1976. Johnny Davis wins a split decision in six rounds over Dwight Muhammad Kawi. Kawi went on to become a Hall of Famer, but uh, Johnny Davis was kind of his nemesis, so to speak. The brother of Eddie Davis, Kawi, also fought Eddie Davis in a title fight, and he stopped Eddie Davis. Uh, But uh, on this date in history, it was one for the Davises as they defeated Mr. Kawi. Johnny defeated Mr. Kawi. Um, in 1976, November 2nd, 1982. This is a, this is one of those fights that you know a guy like me loves. Oscar Rivenadera wins a 10-round decision over Jerry Celestine, light heavyweights. Both of these guys uh, fought uh, Michael Spinks for Spinks's title. Both failed. Celestine was also in there with guys like Eddie Mustafa Muhammad uh, and. On, on this date, they fought each other. Oscar was victorious. This is a fight I would love to see. I don't know if there's any footage out there of it, but it um, sounds like it was a good one. November 2nd, 2002, Marco Antonio Barrera wins a 12-round decision over Johnny Tapia. A couple of Hall of Famers in action on HBO. Barrera was defending his Ring Magazine featherweight title. And on November 2nd, 2007, from the Emerald Queen Casino in Tacoma, Washington, yep, hometown of Greg Haugen, Eddie Chambers wins a split decision in 12 rounds over Calvin Brock. This was uh, showcased as a mini tournament, mini heavyweight tournament. It was Chambers versus Brock. It was Bird versus Prebeckin. And this fight took place on the Emerald Queen. And uh, I write a little bit about the Emerald Queen Casino in in the Greg Haugen book. A couple of top heavyweights of the time went at it. And Chambers, Fast Eddie Chambers, who's been on this show, wins a split decision in 12. So uh, the big fight at the top of the bill for this boxing weekend is the light heavyweight showdown. Talking about a couple of light heavyweights from the past. We got a good light heavyweight showdown this weekend on the zone. Dimitri Bavil uh, against Zerto Ramirez. Now, after Bavil beat Canelo, everybody wanted the better beat of fight. We didn't get it. Seems to be an un, uh, unwelcome theme here. We get all of these fights teased and we don't get them. But at least this time around, Bavil's fighting somebody worthy of our time. You know, Zerto Ramirez is a good fighter. It's a good fight. If you're going to not face the guy we all want to see, at least face somebody that's credible. And this fight is certainly a dangerous one for Bavil. I expect Bavil to win, but it's not going to be easy, and it should be a good fight. So before we get there, I want to touch on the situation of last week with the I want to so I look back on it I I was wrong about one thing Tyson Fury and Derek Chisora three will be on ESPN plus so it's not a pay-per-view you know you have to subscribe to ESPN plus to get it but uh, as far as I saw now there's no extra charge so uh, my apologies for saying oh I guarantee you this is going to be on pay-per-view it's not I still 
uh, hold true to everything else I said uh, about this fight. But since it's not on pay-per-view, I guess you're right, Mr. Aram. It can be seen as somewhat of an early Christmas present. A stocking stuffer, albeit. Uh, at least we don't have to pay for it. So uh, we, we could be uh, uninterested and watch it anyway and not have to shell out uh, the enormous price tag for uh, pay-per-views these days. Uh, unfortunately, there's no change with Bud Crawford and Evan Essen, and that is a pay-per-view, albeit cheaper than the norm, 40 bucks. But I, I wouldn't pay $4 to see that fight. So, so there you go. So thank you so much, Marcus Luck, for coming on. Thank you, Steve Claggett, for coming on. We'll be back again next week. We'll talk about uh, the results of the uh, big light heavyweight showdown on the zone, all the undercard action, uh, the uh, showtime card as well. We'll talk about that. That looks like a good card as well. We'll be back here and talk about it all. Until then, keep on punching. Stop flying, boys. And I'm not thinking anymore